Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. I want you to turn with me for a few moments this evening to the book of Acts and chapter 18. But at the same time, I want you to find Numbers chapter 6 in your Bible. And if you have one of these little ribbon things down the center of your Bible, or a bookmark of some description, put it in Numbers chapter 6, and come with me to Acts chapter 18. Now, before we read, the book of Acts is full of excitement. Last week we saw some of that. Um, We saw the the judgment in the court in the town of Corinth, which uh, fulfilled God's promise to Paul. God had promised that he'd come to no harm there. And he kept that promise. And he kept it in the strangest of ways. He kept it by causing the secular judge to dismiss out of court the false accusations of the local Jews. And that was exciting. But there are lots of passages in the book of Acts that are, shall we say, more prosaic than that, more mundane. Perhaps just little travel logs, lists of towns and places, or lists of people. Now, for me, that always throws up a question. What do we do with them? Do we preach on them, cover the whole book carefully and methodically, or do we just move on to the next exciting bit? Some time ago, I had been challenged Um, It was December, and in December I always preach for a a week, near the end of December, at least one sermon on the incarnation of Christ. And I preach the usual passages, Revelation chapter 12. And um, Matthew's Gospel, Mark, John chapter 1. Somebody said to me, why don't you look for something different? And I thought, well, if that's what you want, that's what I'll do. And I looked for something different. And I decided, just to show them how different I could be, I would preach on Matthew's genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And I said to myself, they'll not ask me for something different again. And yet when I preached on Matthew's genealogy, which most people just read over and probably don't even read, Actually, when I started to research it and to read it carefully and to divide it up into sections, I actually discovered that it was very significant, very, very interesting, very important, and yet most people just gloss over it. So with that in mind, I'm going to look at one of those mundane passages tonight in the book of Acts, one that you might just read over, one that you might just skip and see if we can glean something that'll help us 
in our Christian lives. Acts chapter 18 and verse 18. Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed into Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and had gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Amen. So Paul has been in Corinth for around 18 months. Um, He tarried there a good while, says the scriptures, a good way while indeed, considering that his stay in most other places that he'd visited had been cut short by the poisonous activities of the local Jewish synagogue rulers and their followers. By and large, those men in those synagogues would have been followers of the religion of the Pharisees. They would have no time for the message of salvation by grace, through faith, and Christ alone, without works. For Phariseeism is and was at that time simply a works-based religion. But now the time has come for Paul to leave the town of Corinth. Verse 18. Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren. He leaves behind them, behind him a thriving church. Not a perfect church by any means. You'll not find one of those anywhere. But he will still need to write to them with further help. He'll need to help them with doctrine. He'll need to help them with ethics. He'll need to write to them to defend his own ministry from some very charismatic, high-flying so-called apostles who are defaming him. But there's a church now in Corinth a church with an important role, a church centered in, right in the heart of one of the most sinful cities in the Roman world, and yet a church that is strategic, right on that little knack of the Greek Peloponnesian Peninsula, where boats will have to go backwards and forwards in order for trade to continue, and it's strategic. So Paul leaves Corinth, And he begins his journey back to Antioch. And with it, his second missionary journey will come to an end. And a new third missionary journey will begin. Let's see his voyage and a strange vow. It says here, he sailed thence to Syria, verse 18. Paul's going back to Palestine. 
He wants to go to Jerusalem to attend a feast there. And he wants to return to Antioch to report to the local church to give them the wonderful good news of the conversions that have been taking place in Greece. And he doesn't want to go back by land. He travelled to Corinth by land, partly by sea, but mostly by land. He doesn't want to retrace his steps up all the way through Greece and Macedonia and Asia Minor. He wants to travel by sea. And for those of you who are interested in dates, it's the spring of the year AD 52. The winter storms are over, sea conditions are good, travel will be permitted, and he has friendly companions. Again, we look back at verse 18. And he sailed thence unto Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, two Jewish Christians from Rome, a husband and wife, uh, wealthy business people. They could travel right throughout the whole of the empire, the Roman Empire. And they were with Paul on his journey to Ephesus, where they would remain, and they would gather around them some of those who were interested in the gospel, and they would nurture them until Paul's return. And despite their business activities, they would become missionaries in their own right. We know that they were sufficiently versed in Christian belief to act as mentors to Apollos in Acts chapter 18 and verse 26, where it says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard, they took him unto them, they invited them into him into their house, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And we'll look at that in a fortnight's time. Friendly companions and grateful thanksgiving. Paul was grateful for the work that had been done in Corinth. Now there's an interesting little cameo here that we might miss, but one that's really quite important. The Bible tells us something strange here. Look again at verse 18. He sailed thence unto Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea. Now, Sincrea is the port where you would depart from Corinth and go east. And the Bible tells us that when he got down to the seaport, he went for a haircut. You see the detail that's in the scriptures. Paul went for a haircut. Now, this has nothing to do with a wee bit of personal grooming. Um, that's a strange thing to record in God's word if it was just all about Paul wanting to look better for the trip or if he was perhaps anticipating that he would be invited to have dinner at the captain's table and therefore he had to get his hair done before he went on to the ship. It was nothing to do with that. This haircut was important. Look at what it tells us. It tells us that he had shorn his head for he had a vow. She had shorn his head because he had a vow. His hair is not just cut here. His hair is shorn. When the barber is finished, Paul is completely bald. Now that's where I want you to go with me to Numbers chapter 6 and verse 1. Because we're going to read about something there called the Nazarite vow. 
And this is really quite good and quite important. Nazarite vow. Let's look back at Numbers chapter 6 and verse 1. And hear what it says in God's word. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the people of Israel, and say unto them, When either a man or woman shall separate themselves to vow the vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar or wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liqueur or liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes nor dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. Verse 5. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. Now, Paul had a vow. And in Paul's day, when a Jew wanted to express thankfulness to God for some particular blessing, this is the vow that he would take. And the vow would include avoiding wine and avoiding certain foods and avoiding contact with anything unclean and staying away from funerals and letting your hair grow. I wonder, have you ever seen pictures or maybe you've been in Israel at Jerusalem and you've seen Jewish men with the locks of their hair growing away down here and they're trying to show that they're fulfilling this vow they forget that the vow has been fulfilled in Christ of course they don't believe that so the Jewish man would let his hair grow not just the locks that they like they like the Jews do, but they would, they would let their whole hair grow. And at the end of 30 days, the hair would be cut. And the person would then go up to the temple or to the tabernacle in the wilderness, and they would make certain prescribed sacrifices and offerings, and they would have the hair taken from their head. Look at verse 18 in Numbers 6, chapter, eight, chapter 6 and verse 18. And it says, And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest, and it goes on to tell you what the priest will do. Well, we didn't go into that. So Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. Before he goes, he's made a vow. At the end of the 30 days, the hair would be cut off. And so that's what's meant in Acts 18 and verse 21, where Paul says that he had to go to Jerusalem. He says, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. He had to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the Nazarite vow. Now, what's the significance of this? What's this vow about? Well, the likelihood is that it was a vow of gratitude to God. Remember God, we heard last week, 
God had given Paul a tremendous promise in a dream. He said to him in Acts chapter 18 and verse 9, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And that promise had been kept. As we saw in our last study, <clears throat> when the Roman proconsul refused to hear the vexatious litigation brought by the Jews of the local synagogue, Gallio simply dismissed it out of hand, an action that not only protected Paul on that day, but gave him protective cover for a good ten years afterwards. For a decade, there was unfettered freedom for the preaching of the gospel. God miraculously preserved Paul in keeping with his promise, and Paul was grateful, a gratitude that he rightly directed to God. He made a vow, and the vow was that for 30 days, I will show my gratitude for what the Lord has done for me. And he fulfilled the vow. That's good to thank God for what he's done for us, isn't it? It's good to be especially thankful for specific divine acts of care and deliverance. It's good to be thankful before the Lord for the way in which he has delivered us out of sin and darkness the psalmist talked about how the Lord has raised us up out of a fearful pit and out of the miry clay. But a word of caution. When we make vows before the Lord, we have to be careful. Because God will require those vows from us. The psalmist says in Psalm 61 and verse 5, for thou, O God, hast heard my vows, and thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. So I will sing psalms unto, sing praise unto thee forever, that I may daily perform my vows. I once attended a seriously ill man in the intensive care unit in Antrim Hospital. He was suffering from a strangulated hernia. Uh, it was a seriously critical condition. The poison from the damaged tissue from the hernia had spread into his body and caused septic shock. It was potentially fatal, um, a dangerous condition indeed. And he was in his most critical hours. And I went into intensive care and I sat beside his bedside and there in front of me, he made a vow before the Lord. In his wakened, hoarse voice, he said to me, If the Lord brings me through this, I promise I will serve him for the rest of my life. <coughs> the Lord heard his prayer. And I think to my surprise and the surprise of his family, he came through those dark hours, through the wonders of medical intervention and the healing grace of God and the prayers of the saints. He was brought back to health and strength. But do you know, as soon as he was back to health, his vow before the Lord was very quickly forgotten. 
And he went down a very ungodly path indeed. But I want to warn you that God heard that man's vow. The Lord was present with us even there in the intensive care unit in Antrim Hospital. And I'm going to tell you that one day that man will answer for the vow that he made before the Lord and that he so carelessly breached. We will pay our vows before the Lord and we will pay them in this life or we will pay them on the day of judgment, a voyage and a vow. Verse 19 goes on, that he came to Ephesus and he sailed from Ephesus. Um, He came to Ephesus because although he was sailing from a ship that was bound for Syria, ships can't sail that far in those days. It's not just possible to travel in those days between Corinth and Caesarea in one direct voyage. There must be a stopping point. The ship must take on supplies. It must take on fresh water. It must change crew. It must take on new food. Perhaps it will unload and discharge its cargo and take on more cargo. And that stop is at the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And of course, it would take a week or so for the ship to turn around. So Paul busied himself. Verse 19. He came to Ephesus and he left them there. We're talking there about Priscilla and Aquila because when we come across them next, they'll be in Ephesus. He came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Commentators assuming here that Aquila and Priscilla must have had business interests in Ephesus that needed their attention. For we're told here that when Paul went to the synagogue, he went there alone. Priscilla and Aquila didn't go with him. We're called to be witnesses, but we're also called to do honest work. That's important too. I'm interested, I've always been interested in the verse in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, and I've preached on it a couple of times where Paul writes to Timothy, if any man provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Important to provide for your wife and family and children. Paul went to the synagogue alone. And in verse 20, we're told that they desired him to tarry longer, and he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. His work in Ephesus must have been welcomed. So much so that the people there actually asked him to stay and continue his ministry. Stay and preach. Stay and tell us more about the Lord Jesus. And Paul, again giving a vow, said he would return to Ephesus as part of his third missionary journey. That he'd remain there for a period of years, his longest period of ministry in one place, and it would become a strong church and a significant church. And this very short period, as long as it takes to turn round a ship, is enough for a work of God to be started. That's amazing. Sometimes... 
you go along to take a service that you know you'll never see people again on it. A wedding or a funeral perhaps where other people will come. And people will say to you, what's the point? You know, they're never, you're never going to see those people again. It's only such a short time. You've only got a very short time in a service like that to share any form of gospel witness with them. But even that tiny little short time might be enough to sow a seed. It might be enough just one sentence. It might be enough to make them think. It's the very essence, I'm told, of open-air preaching. That every single sentence you say in a sermon, in the, in the open air, has to be a sermon in itself. Because someone passing by might just hear something that the Lord will apply to their heart. Bring them to conviction of sin. Save them by his grace. Just a week. And from that week grew one of the most significant churches in the New Testament. And so he promises to return. I will return unto you again, if God will. I'm sure Paul would be looking forward to it. People is warm to him. There's great sorrow at his final departure in Acts chapter 20, and we'll look at that in the future, where they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words that he spake, that they should see his face no more. There was a natural bond, a love and an affection, and Paul is quick to remind them that that visit, that return, will be subject to the will of God. Lastly, as I've already explained, this is one of those passages that are just in between things. Look at verse 22 and 23 as we finish. It tells us here, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up, he saluted to the church and he went down. Antioch. Verse 22 and 23 is a hiatus, it's a gap. It's the end. That, those two little verses are the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of his third one. It's strange, it's low-key. The gap between the first and second journeys is well defined. It was easy to understand, but here we have Two verses that signify a whole change in Paul's life. He goes up. Remember that Paul had said he wanted to go to Jerusalem. Verse 21. And tells us that in verse 22, he landed at Caesarea, port on the coast of Syria, and had gone up. Gone up is always referring to Jerusalem. Um, for Jews. Zion was the mountain of the Lord. So in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3, many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. When Jesus was young, Mary and Joseph took him to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 2 and verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. On his final visit to 
Jerusalem before his crucifixion. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 31, Jesus took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. We would do that too, wouldn't we? I'm going up to Port Rush and I'm going down home. It's all level like, but you know what I mean. But the Jews always talked about going up. Going up to Jerusalem. Going up to visit the hill of Zion. Paul went up and he greeted the church. He went to Jerusalem. He paid his vow. He spent time with the believers. And after an uneventful visit, he goes down to Antioch, the mother church of daughter churches all over the Gentile world. And he reports on the success of the gospel. And he seeks their prayers for the next part of the mission And he sets out, and with this simple two-verse transition, Paul's second missionary journey comes to an end, and the third one begins. And it begins here in verse 23, where it says, He departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order. That was the big journey. A continual order or series, successively, consecutively preaching, strengthening the believers, teaching them and encouraging them and establishing them in the faith. A new missionary journey. Next time we meet in two weeks' time, we'll look at Apollos and we'll have a little diversion and we'll go back to Ephesus where a Jew has arrived to preach, and we'll see a little bit about him. But for now, we've come to the end of Paul's second missionary journey. He's had great success. I suppose the low point of that journey must have been Athens, where there's no evidence whatsoever of a new church being formed, even though a handful of souls were saved. But now there's strong churches, If you think of this journey, and we have walked with him all the way along through it, all the way from Antioch in Syria to Corinth in the Peloponnesian Peninsula of Greece, there's daughter churches now. There's churches in Galatia, there's churches in Phrygia, in Macedonia, in Greece itself. Some of them will become very familiar to us. Churches like Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi. And look at the cost that there's been to Paul himself. Not only has he travelled for thousands and thousands of miles on foot and by ship, but he has been physically and mentally abused. He has been financially deprived. He has been laughed at. He's been mocked. And yet he's carried on preaching the gospel. My friends... We must expect nothing else. You start and preach the gospel somewhere, there'll always be somebody who's laughing at you, pointing the finger and mocking and cheering. On his first mission trip, Paul had warned the disciples in Asia Minor that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Right at the very end of his ministry, nothing had changed. For Paul would write to Timothy, and he would say in 2 Timothy 3 and 12, 
that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It will be so. Let's be like Paul. No matter what the hardships of the road may be, let us journey on and keep on preaching and teaching God's word.